Welcome to today's edition of the Career 100 Podcast. Your host, Felicia Gopal, founder of collegefundingresource.com, will be interviewing professionals each week that are currently working in one of the top 100 careers for 2011. This series is designed to introduce students to different career options that are in demand and share the path each practitioner has taken to arrive in their current position. We want to expose you to the varied and distinguished careers of our guests and to perhaps inspire you to consider following in their footsteps or better yet, blaze your own trail. So sit back and relax as Felicia interviews professionals about how they came to be in the top 100 careers. Hello, good evening everyone. We have a special guest this evening. Her name is Felicia Gopal and she's a financial planner and today she's going to tell us all about her career and why she believes that being a financial planner is on the list of the top 100 careers for the next decade. Felicia, are you there? I am. Welcome, welcome. How are you this evening? I'm fabulous tonight. Excellent. Well, why don't we get right to it? So just tell me a little bit about how you became a financial planner. You know, like a lot of people who get into their careers, it's kind of a circuitous route. I ended up having a uh, boyfriend in college. When he graduated from college, he was offered a job where, you know, at 24 years old, he was being offered $40,000 a year salary, and he turned that down. So that got my attention, and I was just like, how could you do that? I mean, my parents have worked for the federal government for a number of years, and at the time, they weren't making 40000 and he was being offered 40000 just out of college. So I was just like, well, what the heck are you going to be doing? And he ended up, he was going to be an options trader. His brother ended up fronting him $50,000 to start being an option trader on the Pecos, on the Pacific Exchange, for options, and I thought that was interesting. And I remember one day when he had a particularly bad day. And what I mean by that is we were living in kind of a communal house, and I walked in the door and somebody says, uh, Rob had a bad day. I said, oh, okay. And I went further into the house. Somebody else said, you know, Rob had a really bad day today. I said, okay. And then, you know, I walk a little further, and Rob had a really bad day today. And I'm just like, well, what kind of day could he have if he had that bad a day? Well, it turns out that with options trading, he actually ended up losing all of the money his brother had fronted him, $50,000, one day of trading. And I was just like, oh, my goodness, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to go out and get a job? And he's like, oh, no, it's going to be okay. My brother's giving me another $50,000. I was just like, your brother's giving you another $50,000? You just lost the first $50,000. How is he giving you? He was just like, well, you know, that's just how it works. He figures it's part of my learning. And so he just gave me another $50,000. And I said, okay. So, again, this is just kind of getting my attention. What happened is he not only returned the first $50,000, but the second $50,000 in about three months of trading. So that told me that something about the stock market option stuff is something that I maybe needed to pay attention. But I didn't pay a whole lot of attention at the time, and we ended up going our separate ways. What really got me to change the way that I was doing things is, I was working as an accountant in the legal department of a law firm working on their estate planning department. And what I tell people is I was working with millionaires all the time. 
everybody that I worked with was very successful, basically had an estate that was over a million dollars if I was going to be working with them. And I just noticed they were doing something fundamentally different from what I was doing and what I'd learned at home. And what happened was there was a gentleman whose wife had died, and part of what we did when we were putting together the state tax return is we took pictures of basically everything that we were reporting to the IRS. So across my desk one day came a picture of a Mercedes convertible, 450SL, which is my dream car. I love that car. And it was one of those situations where it was a older lady who didn't drive it in the rain, garaged it all the time. You know, she was going too far. She didn't drive it. If there were clouds in the sky, she didn't drive it. And just really babied the car. And I just happened to mention in passing to the gentleman when I first started working with him that, you know, that's my dream car. I'd love to have a car like that at some point. And so he just said, oh, okay. So what happens, John, is when you're working with somebody preparing their gift tax return or their estate tax return, you end up working with them over a nine-month period of time. And so probably month eight, close to the end, he gives me a phone call and he says, Felicia, I'd like to offer you the opportunity to buy that Mercedes convertible. You know, I had a conversation with him. It was just a passing comment. I wasn't trying to say or do anything with that. I just happened to mention I'd love a Mercedes convertible sometime. Well, he calls me up and he says, Felicia, you know, you've made this time period that was hard as easy as possible. You've been responsive, you've been helpful, and I'd really like to do something for you. And I was just like, uh, okay. And he was just like, I'd like to offer you the opportunity to buy that Mercedes convertible. And I mean, you know, I've completely forgotten about it. I was like, what Mercedes convertible? He goes, my wife's Mercedes convertible. And I was just like, uh, well, what do you want for it? And he offered it to me for $7,000. Get out of here. <laughs> you know that was What's the deal. What's the catch? That was the deal of the century. Yeah. And what happened was I had just never managed my finances very well. My parents were good managers of money, but I just never did. And while I was being paid a decent wage, I never really saved anything. I'd always lived kind of paycheck to paycheck. And so I told him, well, you know what, let me think about it and I'll get back to you because, you know, I wasn't planning on buying a Mercedes today. I called him back a couple days later and I said, you know what, I just can't afford to buy the Mercedes. And it was just dead silence. And he goes, Felicia, do you mind if I say something to you? And I was just like, um, sure. He goes, I'm very disappointed that you're not able to buy this core because this really is a really great deal. He goes, I know where you work, and I have an idea that you're well paid for what you're doing. And I said, that's true. And he goes, and you work every day with people like myself who are millionaires. Millionaires are always in the position to take care of the opportunities that are offered to them. It's other people who aren't able to do that. So if you want to ever be a millionaire, if you ever want to be successful with your money, you've got to watch what we do. And it just made an impact, that conversation. You know, sometimes I talk to people, John, and they always pay attention to the fact that I wasn't able to buy the Mercedes. But let me tell you, that conversation, not being able to buy the Mercedes, is what really turned things around for me. I sat down and said, you know what, I'm going to have to learn something about this money management stuff. I'm going to have to learn something about this. So I started reading books. I started doing all that. And I was just like, ooh, this is really fascinating stuff. 
this is really fascinating stuff. And I was just like, I want to learn a little bit more. And as I learned a little bit more and a little bit more, I decided, you know what, I want to get good at this. I want to really get good at this. And that had me changing my career from being an accountant to being a financial advisor. Oh, interesting. I could definitely see why having that conversation with that millionaire prompted you to consider that as being a financial planner as a viable career path. That's quite a fascinating story. So now that you're a financial planner, what do you like about being a financial planner? When I was a kid, I always liked putting together puzzles. You know, it's something that I enjoy doing. And to me, that's what financial planning is about when you're a comprehensive financial planner as I am. I like to put together the pieces of people's finances, having their cash flow work, having their insurance in place, having their investments in place, all of the things that kind of go into a person's financial picture is what I like putting together. I think it's fascinating when it works. And when you see the light go on for people, when you're able to share with them when they've been in circumstances very much like mine, where they've been in debt, whatever there is, but where they haven't felt like they've had a lot of confidence around their finances, and I'm able to show them that this is something that they can do, this is something that they can accomplish, these are goals that they can put in place for themselves, you know, a successful retirement, putting their kids through school. I mean, that is the biggest joy, is being able to really help people reach the goals that they set for themselves. I see. So you like the idea of being a financial architect that helps people get to from point A to point B, wherever point B is. Yeah, because it's not my point A and my point B. It's right. their point A and their point B. People get excited when they pay off debt. People get excited when they're able to put their kids in school. I mean, people just get really, really excited about that sort of stuff. And when I'm part of that, then I get pretty excited about it, too. That's excellent. So if someone was interested in becoming a financial planner, is there a suggested path? There really isn't. I was going to say it's a strange career, but it's not a strange career. But there isn't any definitive path. You will find financial planners who kind of change careers like I did and came into it, you will find a lot of new people who are coming into the industry where they've actually pursued a degree undergraduate. You have people who are former teachers. What you have is you have people who like to help people, I would say, is something that is in common with them. And people who are very goal-oriented are people who are successful as financial planners. So what advice would you give someone? who came up to you and said, Felicia, you know what, I'm really strongly considering being a financial planner. I would say one of the foremost things is they've got to be somebody who is interested in wanting to help somebody. So it's a career that you can certainly make a lot of money in, and certainly that's one of the reasons why people are interested in the industry. But the reality is people who stay in the industry for any length of time are people who've really kind of got that mindset. They're looking to help people get from point A to point B. The other thing that I would also say to them is, and I have a bias about this, but I think that they should also consider becoming a certified financial planner like myself. When I was first coming into the industry, when I was considering making the jump from accounting to personal finance, what I did is I opened the phone book in the San Francisco Bay Area 
I had read that if you're going to talk to anybody as a financial planner, you need to talk to people who are a certified financial planner. So I went in the phone book, looked in the yellow pages, and that tells you how long I've been in the industry. But I opened the yellow pages, and I just looked for anybody who had CFP after their initials. One of the things that happened is I talked to as many people as would talk to me. I probably talked to over 20 different people when I was considering coming into the industry. And one of the things I found is there's a lot of specialization. I found there were people who just worked with teachers. I had people who just worked with people who worked for a particular corporation. Now, I got started in the San Francisco Bay Area, so you might have people who just worked with Pacific Bell employees, just all aspects of it. But mm-hmm. what I found interesting is the people who said that what they do is they look at everybody's finances holistically. I wasn't particularly interested in those people who just kind of specialized and said that I'm only going to look at this piece of it. I'm only going to look at the insurance. I'm only going to look in the investments. I was really attracted to the people who were looking at all of the various different pieces of their personal finances, you know, their budgets, their insurance, their investments, and wanted to put together a comprehensive plan. So typically a certified financial planner, while there is a degree of specialization with not every certified financial planner doing the same thing, what you will find true for many of them is they do tend to look at things kind of in a holistic manner in terms of people's finances. And I think for me that's one of the things that is really very interesting. To add to that, John, is the fact that being a certified financial planner means that a person had to have gone through a certain level of training. You've got to take about two years of classes in order to complete your certification. In addition to that, you've got to take a two-day test and pass it in order to be a certified financial planner. And the last thing is you also have a continuing education component. There's lots and lots of people who call themselves financial planners. I think the best and the brightest tend to be certified financial planners. Now, I will tell you, that's my bias. You will certainly meet lots of financial planners who don't have that designation, who I think are good and great financial planning professionals. But I look for and think that people should look for somebody who's got that designation. I see. So now let's get to the actual job itself of being a financial planner. What are some of the things that you actually do in your job? Well, you know, I'm probably a little bit different in that one of the things that I started to develop about seven years ago is a specialization in college planning. People always think when I tell them I specialize in college planning, they always think that that means that I work just with scholarships and grants because everybody just wants the free money. That's all they want to talk about. Can you help me with free money? And the answer is yes, I can, but that's not all that I do. I have developed a specialization in college planning, and how it ties back to the CFP designation is by looking at people's finances overall, I can look at their cash flow planning, I look at their tax planning, I look at their financial planning, and basically can help them craft a plan that will help them pay for their children's college education. So I've basically taken the skills 
and education that I started the industry with and now have taken all of those things and brought them into my current practice where I am using those skill sets with some newly developed skill sets to basically help families to pay for college. Okay. Excellent. And talk about timely because the cost of college is astronomical these days and you really need a game plan. If you're not Donald Trump or somebody who's rich, you know, they're going to have to come up with a game plan or have somebody help them come up with a way to be able to pay for college for the kids. Well, I think that's true. And I can go on and on about the state of education, but the point is with the CFP designation and the specialization in college is that I'm taking all of the things that I've learned and I'm adding to it and getting people to their goal because here's the thing, John, you may or may not be familiar with, but the single biggest cost that most people have in their finances after buying their house is the cost of college education. And if you've got multiple kids to educate, then that could be very, very impactful on the ultimate goal, which is to retire and live comfortably. So if you haven't made decisions that are supportive of your finances and you've made decisions that mean that you're taking on perhaps more debt than you need to or steering your kids to lesser colleges just because you're looking at the high cost of college, then I think that that's an unfortunate choice. And I think one of the things is... I just want more people to be aware of people like myself who can help them because I think what happens is for a lot of people is they just kind of throw their hands up and are just thinking that they can't be helped and they'll just have to suffer and take out a lot of debt. I see. Well, I'm going to play devil's advocate here because this is an interesting topic. (laughs) There's a school of thought that as parents that their children – should bear the brunt of responsibility of financing their college education because they're going to live longer. And the parents feel like, you know what, should I really sacrifice my retirement for my kid's education? And some school of thought is that, no, you shouldn't, because the kid has years of earnings potential. Yes, they may have some debt or maybe even a lot of debt when they come out, but they have time to pay it off. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that is one rule of thinking as far as college is concerned. And basically, when I sit down and talk to parents, I really find that parents fall into two different camps. One camp is they'll do anything for their kids' education. They will take out debt. They will mortgage their house. They will do all the things that are necessary. The other parents are, you know what, my parents didn't, couldn't, wouldn't pay for my education, and my kids can't pay for their own education, and I need to take care of myself. You know, I have mixed feelings about that. Certainly, I'm a big believer in education, and it's Uh something that I think that parents need to be supportive of, but I am not interested in parents who will basically bankrupt themselves so that their kids can go to college. And I find that even with my very successful clients, they're unwilling to. And what I mean by that, what I've been finding sometimes is some of my clients, what they'll do is they'll have their kids take out the federal loan programs that are available to them so that they end up graduating with, call it $25,000, $30,000 worth of debt. And their intention is to pay off 
vedette, but they don't bother to mention that to their kids as they go through. Their thinking is their kids will be more motivated to go through, and there's a whole thinking about having some skin in the game. If mommy and daddy are going to pay for everything, then some kids will take a little bit longer to go through change majors 16 different times, they'll do all those sorts of things. But when they've got some skin in the game, then they're just like, you know, if I stay another year, that's another $5,000 I'm going to have to borrow. Mommy and Daddy aren't planning on paying this off, and so maybe I ought to take some summer school classes, or maybe I ought to test out of something, or maybe I've got to, instead of going to that party every weekend, miss a couple parties and make sure that I graduate on time. My Uh, niece is just getting ready to graduate and is graduating in three years. You know, uh, you hear so much about kids who stay for six, seven, or more years, but there are still kids who are graduating in three years and four years. And for some parents, they believe having some skin in the game is what makes the difference for their kids. I agree with you 100% because when I was looking at potential colleges, I kept in mind that, one, I didn't want to burden my parents. So... I made my choice based on which school gave me the best package. And looking back, I'm glad I made the decision I did. And it incentivized me to, one, well, in school because I had a scholarship to keep, but also to graduate on time. Right. So I definitely agree with you that students should have some skin in the game and to take ownership of their education. And if that means that they have to get into some debt, that's what it means because the reality is, they have a longer time span, generally speaking. So they would have time to be able to pay it off and move on. Whereas if the parent assumes all that debt, that could seriously compromise their own retirement. I completely agree. And the other side of it is more and more kids are graduating with more and more debt. And I think that's a little bit of a problem, as well as the job market is just not returning the jobs. So you have a number of people who are graduating from school who've got a fair amount of debt and are not able to find jobs. It's an unfortunate situation. So I think that one of the most important things is if you're going to take in on any debt, and there's nothing wrong with that, then you only take on as much debt as you can afford. And you don't end up financing a luxurious lifestyle. I have a very good friend out in California. Her niece went to Stanford undergraduate and then did a master's Ph.D. program out there. She ended up graduating with $300,000 worth of debt. I can't even wrap my mind around that. I can't even wrap my mind around that. Well, the flip side of that is a degree from Stanford because Stanford is such a prestigious university. It puts herself in a position where she can earn a good income where, yes, $300,000 is a lot, no question about it, but she'll also be in a position where she'll be able to secure a job that would pay above average. Well, I think that also presumes that the field that she was going into was going to pay those kind of wages. So let me be clear. My husband graduated from Stanford also, and he ended up graduating with a degree in aerospace engineering. So first and foremost, he would never take out $300,000. He would have had a heart attack before that happened. But um, regardless, coming out with an engineering degree from Stanford meant that he was going to get a job that was going to pay a wage that would allow him to pay off his debt. By contrast, I probably don't have the degree correct, but say that she was ending up getting a degree as a clinical psychologist. You won't have the same sort of career track. 
Certainly, you can build a practice where you're making right. significant wages, but when you first get out of school, you have to build a practice. You and I know that building a practice is not as easy as just putting out your single. So again, nothing against her and the choices that she made, but what I say to people is I just wish that more people knew what it is that I did and more people talked to me because I could be the voice of reason when you're making some of the decisions that you're making that can point out some of the fallacies in your thinking. I would have loved to have talked to this kid and said, you know what, perhaps this is not where you need to continue or perhaps there are other decisions that you could have made that would be more supportive. But I didn't, and unfortunately, she needs to be making some really significant money in order to pay back 300000 because at $300,000 of debt for her college education, I know a large percentage of that is going to be in private student loans, and a lot of the options that she would have had from the federal government are not available to her. So she just needs to be making that kind of money in order to pay that off. No, that's an excellent point. And it definitely, depending on your career or the major, it could definitely impact your ability to repay a loan, especially a loan of that size. So that's a good point. And I think more college students need to be more aware of that and realize that, hey, if I major in social work, that would come out of school with hundreds of thousands in debt, that can be a problem. So I think it's definitely important that people have a plan and think about those things and be really deliberate in their approach when it comes to choosing a major and how much debt they're going to take on. So I can definitely see having a financial planner in the loop. No, that's excellent. So what major interests would you expect a prospective employee or person to demonstrate if they're going to work as a financial planner? So I would say that people that I see be the most successful are people who are able to blend both relationships as well as the technical. Because there's a technical aspect of what it is that I do. I mean, you've got to be able to run the numbers. And so you'll find people who are finance majors who are very good with this. The other thing about it is while there's no particular major you need to have, what I would say is, In addition to being able to build relationships and being able to run the numbers, there's a certain disposition you've got to be able to have. It can be very difficult to build a practice in the beginning. It's one of the reasons why if you talk to people, you will find, as I do, there's a lot of people who used to be in the financial services industry. Because one of the things that happens in the financial services industry is they often will bring a lot of people through, people who are just getting out of school, people who are changing careers, people who are making changes like that. So they'll bring them through. So people who have got a large network of people, so you belong to a fraternity if you were in college, if you are a big networker, are people who are very successful. But the other thing is, If you don't have that skill, the other thing that you can do to be very successful is hook up with somebody who does. So I'm really pretty good about the relationship part of it, and I can do the analytics part of it. But it's not something I particularly enjoy. So if you're somebody who is comfortable enough 
that you don't always have to be the only game in town, that can really get you to get from point A to point B much quicker. So you just hook up with somebody who's really good at what you aren't and be willing to share the business. I think one of the biggest mistakes is you have a lot of people who are type A personality coming into this industry, which is great. However, type A personalities like to do it on our own. We like to do it our way. We, you know, we don't usually like to ask for a lot of help, all the rest of that sort of So if you put that to the side and uh, work with somebody else, I think that you can get started much faster than somebody who is just trying to do it all on their own at the beginning. There's just too much to learn, and you can end up – having a great prospect in front of you that you just don't know enough about all the ins and outs of financial service to really meet that person's needs. I've been at a couple of places where they really kind of encouraged that. And I'm telling you, I learned a whole lot, and it allowed me to bring in much bigger clients than I would have been able to do on my own because I got teamed up with somebody who knew how to work with those types of people and who knew how to close on those types of situations. And that really is ideal. So what you're saying basically ideally is if someone can serve as an apprentice to a successful financial planner, and get an opportunity to learn their business and at the same time also look to qualify for their CFP designation, that that could be a good career trajectory to increase the likelihood that they'll be successful. Well, yes, and if you look at the numbers in the financial planning industry, it really Mm -hmm. kind of behooves that. Because one of the things is a lot of the people who've been in the industry are going to be looking to get out in the next 10, 15 years. So there's a lot of people who are going to be looking to get out of their practice. So if they've trained you to run their business the way that they run their business, first and foremost, they have somebody that they could potentially sell their practice to, which is uh, something that they'd be very interested in, as well as they've got people that are familiar to their clients. So one of the big challenges with a lot of businesses in general, not just financial services, is there's no value in the business. I've worked in the business for 10 years, 20 years, however long, and because I haven't put in systems and I haven't done all that sort of stuff, basically when I leave the company, my company just dies. But if you have an apprentice and you come in as somebody's apprentice, you can help them develop uh, systems such that their business has value once they step out of it, and they can make a transition. They can tell people, you know what, I'm going to be selling my business to my business partner who you've been working with for the last five years, so they've got some way to earn out their cash in their business. Those are all really important things to people who are looking to leave their business and have it continue even after they're no longer in it. So you serving as an apprentice, you could be part of somebody's succession plan, basically. Absolutely. Okay. Makes perfect sense. So why do you think that being a financial planner is on the list of the top 100 careers for the next decade? I think it has to do with a couple of things. First and foremost, it has to do with there's a lot of studies out there that say that people are not as prepared for retirement as they think they are. Uh, They haven't saved enough for retirement. The other thing is there's a lot of complexity. People are being asked to make a lot of decisions in their finances that they never had to make before. used to be when my mom and dad were working for the federal government, you got a pension. 
So right. you worked for X amount of time for the federal government. You got a nice little pension. It provided you a nice income, and you were able to live comfortably. But pensions are going the way of the dodo bird, and you were asked to save your own money, and people just aren't saving enough. They're not saving enough by half. And there's a real concern that as baby boomers get older and start retiring in bigger and greater numbers, they're going to find what they've been doing all the way up to that is not going to serve them. And they're going to need to figure out, what am I going to do for the next 10, 20 years? Because baby boomers in general, we like to retire early. So we want to retire at 55, and we want to basically be bringing in about 100% of our income, despite the fact that we've only saved $2.50. So there's a disconnect between what people want and what their finances are able to generate for them. So I think that's one of it. The other thing is just the complexity. You know, now we're having to figure out long-term care situations because now we have to educate our kids and maybe help our parents. In addition to that, people are living longer, but they're also living longer sicker. So we're now having to navigate. So it's about looking at all of those issues and really being able to put together a game plan to give people the success in retirement that they'd like to have. That makes sense. And especially given how turbulent the stock market has been as of late, I can see why now more than ever people would need the guy a good financial planner to navigate those issues. You actually brought up a really great point, John, in that one of the things that happened in the late 1990s, 2000 era, everybody thought that they were really good stock pickers or mutual fund pickers, whatever they did, because if you looked at what was happening in the market, everything was going up, 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 up. So people thought that they knew more about personal finance than perhaps was really warranted, given their knowledge, just because what they selected went up. So, you know, I had conversations. My husband was going to uh, business school at the time, and I remember talking to some of those business school students with him. They kept on telling me it's a new economy. I can't tell you how many times I heard it was a new economy. You know, I heard that too. <laughs> you, know, you know, a lot of people heard that. People weren't happy with you were a financial advisor and you got them 40%. They weren't interested because their friend got 60%. And then they wanted you to move them into whatever got them into 60%. But then you had the first correction from 2000 to 2002. That kind of made a huge dent on a lot of people's portfolios. But I think uh. what happened in 2007 really made people believers and really came to realize that, you know what, I perhaps don't know as much as I thought because what happens is, and as I tell people, is it's not just about being able to get the returns on the upside, but it's also about being able to protect yourself on the downside. And I think that's the value that a good financial advisor will bring is they may not be able to get you the highs when the highs are running as high as XYZ Mutual Fund is able to do. But if they can protect you on the downside, I think that's really where you see advisors providing value, as well as when they can see something in your finances that you're not seeing. I used to talk when I was at one of the companies I was with about – you know, I've done a good job if I could show you 
that something about your finances that you didn't know and how it's going to impact you if you don't do something about it. And I think Uh, that's really what a financial planner does. A good financial uh, planner will not only be able to get the high returns, which is what clients want, but they can also protect you from when the market corrects, as the market will correct, and they're going to prepare you for that. They're going to have that conversation with you, as well as they can also look at your finances and identify places where there are opportunities and threats in your finances that perhaps you need to address. And it may be even after you've talked to another financial advisor. So a good financial planner oftentimes can come behind somebody that you've already worked with and see opportunities and threats. Because I think one of the things that is true is oftentimes we can see what we've been exposed to. So a good financial planner has been exposed to a lot of different ideas and can bring it all to the table and not just have one-size-fit-all solutions for all the clients that they meet with. Okay. So, yeah, it's really about providing a customized solution for each client. Okay. Well, Felicia, you provided a wealth of information. If someone was looking to contact you to find out more about being a financial planner and to get some advice, what would be the best way for them to reach out to you? The best way to get a hold of me is to go to my website. My website is collegefundingresource.com. That's C-O-L-L-E-G-E, funding, F-U-N-D-I-N-G, resource, R-E-S-O-U-R-C-E.com. College Funding Resource, or you can always call me at 201-453-9875. That's collegefundingresource.com uh-huh. or 201-453-9875. Great. So any final thoughts that well, you want to leave, you know, leave the I audience with? I tell you, I think it's one of the best career choices, uh, not only for me but for a lot of people. And so I highly encourage you to think about joining. If you decide to join the industry, my suggestion is that you go ahead and get the credential, the Certified Financial Planning designation. The CFP board monitors that. And you can always find out a little bit more about the CFP designation by going to cfp.net. Well, Felicia, I want to thank you for your time and your insight and your enthusiasm about financial planning and being a financial planner. We want to wish you all the success in your career path, and we hope you continue to do great work for your clients and to inspire other financial planners to join you. All right. Well, John, I thank you very much for interviewing me and letting me share a little bit more about the financial planning industry that I love. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to today's edition of the Career 100 Podcast. We hope you'll join us again for our next podcast, where we'll continue to interview experts in the top 100 careers for 2011, giving you the insider's view of their chosen profession. If you'd like more information about planning and saving for college and to instantly download your free copy of College Funding Resources Report, Five Strategies That Parents Need to Start Using Today to Cut Their College Costs Tomorrow, visit www.collegefundingresource.com. That's www.collegefundingresource.com. This is Kathy Davis for the Career 100 Podcast.